Greetings and welcome to another different church podcast. My name is Jarrett and I hope you are doing awesome. I'm recording this intro at 1051. It's Tuesday night. I'm getting this to you way late in the week. I'm sorry. Um, what was I doing? I was, I was working. I was working Sunday. I wasn't at church. Monday was a holiday. So my bad, but here it is. Uh, I haven't even had a chance to listen to this yet. I am mostly sure that we are still going through uh, Richard Rohr's um, stuff, his writings, his teachings, his philosophy, and we love Richard Rohr. So I'm excited about that. I'm going to be hearing it at the same time as you. Um, I don't have any announcements. I don't have anything to say except for that Hannah is awesome, and here she is. I feel much better than I did last week. I don't know what happened last week. I had some weird foot issue. Seems to be a thing. At different church, people have foot issues. Jared was limping around in a boot a couple months ago, and then I couldn't even walk for no reason, but now I'm fine. So that's, yeah, the doctor was like, um, there's nothing wrong that we can tell. Your foot just hits you. (laughs) It's great, great. It's great how when you're in your 30s, your body parts are just like, actually, we hate you. We've been friends your whole life, but now we're not. And um, I just decided that right now. (laughs) Until you're 40, and then even more body parts hate you. (laughs) So it just is all downhill from here, and then you die. And um, amen, let's go home. (laughs) Last Sunday, we talked about all or nothing thinking and how that impacts our faith. Um, And today, we are continuing our conversation with Richard Rohr. And we are going to talk about presence. And our scripture for today comes from Luke 10, 42, and is Jesus speaking very gently to his friend and fabulous worrywart, Martha. Uh, this, is, this is Jesus talking. And I just imagine him saying this so gently. He says, Martha, Martha, you worry about the 10,000 things. So few are needed. Indeed, only one. Now, I think most of us are probably familiar with the story of Martha. Jesus is staying with his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They're like siblings. Apparently, they like each other. They're all living in the same house. Jesus and his disciples come to visit them, and Martha's doing the reasonable, hospitable thing. She's like rushing around. She's fixing things. She's preparing things. The Bible says, I think brilliantly, distracted with all the serving. She was being an excellent host. She was taking care of her family. She was taking care of her guests. She was the model of perfection, a regular Martha Stewart. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. That's the only joke. (laughs) So get your laughs out now. (laughs) She was doing everything good and right except for the one most important thing, being present. She was not being present to herself, which meant she was not present to her feelings of resentment, (laughs) her martyr complex, her need to be needed, her codependency. That's uh, the kind of goodness that doesn't do any good. And Martha was not being present to herself. And because she wasn't being present to herself, she could not be present in any kind of meaningful way to her guests either. And spiritually speaking, she couldn't be present to God. Presence is presence is presence. (laughs) Like how you do presence is how you do everything. Jesus challenged her at the ordinary human level because how we do things at our human level is the same way we do things at the divine level. There is no difference. So much of religion involves 
teaching people like this belief and that doctrine and the accumulation of facts about the Bible and the accumulation of facts about Jesus and somehow that's supposed to add up to salvation. Is it though? Jesus is saying there's only really one change you need to do and it's how you do every moment. Only one thing is necessary. If you are present, as we said last week, you will eventually experience the presence of God. It's so simple. It's so hard to do. It's so hard to teach. It sounds like cheap affirmation. Oh, just be present. (laughs) Hashtag present. (laughs) But like knowledge is the gathering of information. We all like knowledge, especially like Western people. We want to know about the things. We want to know Martha's 10,000 things and we have all the facts and it's beneficial, but it doesn't accumulate into wisdom. Just because you know things doesn't mean anything other than sometimes you're obnoxious. (laughs) Wisdom is a different way of seeing the 10,000 things. Wisdom is the freedom to be present. Presence is wisdom. It's the hardest thing of all. Just like, just try to keep your heart open and your mind without analyzing or resisting or rejecting and your body not frantically doing something. This is why meditation is like impossible for most people. And we say, we're like, oh, you know, we should, I should meditate, but my mind is just so busy. As if somehow that like removes our responsibility to try. <laughs> we're like, um, yes, it's obvious my mind is so busy, so I can't meditate, which is the point of meditation that your mind is so busy, right? We can't be present. We're like, my mind is too busy. I can't be present. But presence, if our presence is wrong, we will not even recognize the real presence when it shows up every day. Just like Martha. We'll be running around, trapped in our circles of endless whatever we're doing. God will be there, but we won't. And I think, like, if you just take a glance at Jesus' life, almost everyone around him missed the presence that was literally right in front of them. Most of them were religiously observant. They went to church on Saturday. They were evangelicals, practicing evangelicals. (laughs) They were looking for religion, and Jesus was a human being. They were storing up treasures in heaven, and Jesus was talking about regular life, like birds and flowers and day laborers and suffering. God was there, but they weren't. I think eternity is going on all the time, and Jesus wants to give us a way to dip into that stream now and forever. If we have it now, we will have it then too. To Jesus, there was no like, discontinuity. Time and eternity are the same thing. But we are Martha. We are concerned by definition about everything, everywhere, all at once. We are afraid of death. We're afraid of judgment. We're afraid of the future. We're afraid of losing control as if we ever had it to begin with. We're afraid to sit down and stop running around on our hamster wheel and just look because then we're afraid that we're not actually going anywhere, which is true. The future is like by definition uncontrollable. It's, it's full of paradox and mystery and confusion and like we just, we can't control the future. So it's an imperfect world on every level. Anything is possible in the future, right? Therefore, always scary. I mean, what is anxiety? But like, I don't know what's gonna happen. What if the worst thing happens? Okay, well, what if it 
doesn't. Equally valid question, but no, no, the future is terrifying. And so we build for ourselves all these protections, like in our life and in our mind, we're just like, we, we are just searching constantly for predictability and safety and security and order so that we feel in control. And we have a little hope. But hope has nothing to do with mental certainty. If we surrender to our fear of the unknown, I think our lives just become insurance policies, like a stack of insurance policies. Our few years that we get become really small and self-protective, and we build walls around all the things we can be sure of and all the things we think we can control, including God, which build walls around that too. And it gives us this illusion that we are in the driver's seat, that we are driving safe roads, small safe roads, not I-4. A nice road with a low speed limit and not a lot of curves. But those roads always take us in a predetermined direction that takes us back only to where we have already been. And to every disciple in the Bible and to us today, Jesus is simply says, follow me. Which means we're going to have to get off the, that tiny road because following implies a journey where we are not in control of the GPS. I don't, like when I was a kid, GPS did not exist because I'm, you know, in my 30s. <laughs> we had these things called triptychs from AAA that my dad would get and they'd be like 70 pages long. And I don't, like, who invented those? Here's a spiral-bound notebook for the map of where you're going from Florida to South Carolina. But if you didn't have AAA and you were trying to get somewhere, you just guessed, or you had a giant map, or you caravanned. I cannot tell you how stressed out my mom was every time we were doing something as a kid and someone was like, oh, yeah, just follow me. And then there's this long line of like minivans and mid-sized sedans with children in them and some of them would get stuck at a red light and then it would just be a nightmare and no one had cell phones. So no one just, no one ever got where they were going. <laughs> if you were at the end of the caravan, there's no hope for you, okay? There's no like, oh, hey, I don't want to say her name because she'll start talking to me. Hey, you know who? <laughs> How do I get to the Starbucks? No, there was nothing, a void, an eternal void of sadness. You had to stop at a gas station and talk to a real person who gave you horrible directions. <laughs> like, oh, you just go like, like 10 minutes that way, and when you get to the elementary school, you went too far. <laughs> Following is, a, is horrible. <laughs> it is a horrible idea, okay? And yet, that is what Jesus says we have to do. It means we're not in control of the GPS. In fact, the GPS doesn't even exist and we only have a vague idea of the destination. We don't even know where we're going exactly. Jesus is like, oh, we're going that way. For what? You'll see. <laughs> and we think like, well, how could Jesus do that to us? Literally, the Bible starts with God being like, hey, Abram, get up and go somewhere. And Abram's like, where? And he's like, you'll see. What? <laughs> this is not how you do life, God. I don't, someone needs to get God in order. Following requires a journey. And I think for most people, there's like two groups of people, usually. There's people where there's no life journey is necessary at all because we have all of our answers already. 
The Bible says, the church says, my parents says, I says, the internet says. We have the answers. We do not need to go on a journey to find any more. And then we have people over here who just choose to keep busy. <laughs> We're just like, well, um, we'll just have our series of manufactured dramas and entertainment sessions and um, diversionary tactics, all intended to keep our minds off of the existential questions that keep us up at night or that pop up uncontrollably when we're confronted with like death or trauma. Our brain's like, what if it's all false? <laughs> what if nothing matters? And we're like, no, let's go to a movie. <laughs> no, thank you. And I think all of us, no matter where, I'm over here, just so you know. <laughs> My brain's like, hey, what? And I'm like, no, no, no. Let's just not think about that right now or ever. Thank you. Um, whether we think we have all the answers or we are ignoring the question, we try to protect ourselves by making judgments. And Jesus has a very famous command in both Matthew and Luke. It says, do not judge. And that, I mean, honestly, it seems like a naive or impossible or possibly dangerous command. Like we have to make some judgments, don't we? We can't just allow everyone to do everything all the time. Society would collapse. My household would implode. My toddler would run the world. So we have to draw lines. Sometimes we have to draw lines. Yes, this is true, but guess where we start? We start by drawing lines, which means we have zero room for understanding. And Jesus is saying, you cannot start seeing or understanding anything if you start with no. We have to start with yes, of like just a basic acceptance, yes, which means not too quickly labeling or analyzing we're categorizing things as good or bad. There's a little part of us called our ego that just like thrives on fear and control. It gets stronger when we're against things. And it gets stronger when we just react out of fear or anger. It gets stronger when something triggers us and we're like, no, <laughs> instantly, or we just freak out. And then someone's like, I'm sorry, that seems like a level 10 reaction to a level two statement. <laughs> or as my grandfather would say, that's a duller answer to a nickel question. <laughs> he thought it was very funny. He was, I thought it was a great joke when I was like eight. <laughs> we, our ego just grows. It's like, yes, give me more. And we cannot live as people of faith by our knee-jerk reactions and our defensiveness. This is not easy. <laughs> this is why the way is narrow and few find it. Because we would much rather not do that work because it sucks. <laughs> it's hard. It takes a lifetime of work and honest self-observation, which is even harder because then we're like, mm, maybe I'm not as great as I thought I was. Maybe I'm not right all the time. Maybe I do need to listen to other people's perspectives. It takes a lot of work to stop judging. It takes a lot of work to stop starting with no. If we start with no, I stole this from Richard War, so don't think I'm this catchy in real life. If we start with no, then we cannot know anything. <laughs> you see what Richard Rohr did there. We always try to control everything, but knowing happens after a change of our heart. 
All the, anytime we change our mind, it happens after we changed our heart. Pure experience, like being present in a moment, it's always non-dualistic. It's always non-binary. Fundamentalism, which I know many of us come from like really fundamentalist spaces and we're like, <laughs> how dare you? What is it? It's basically a love affair with words and ideas about God instead of God. But you can't really love words. You can only think them. You can't love your life and your faith as it is when we are in our judgmental, like processing mind, because we're always going to try to control it and fix it and analyze it and categorize it instead of just going on a journey with Jesus. Jesus is like, follow me. And we're like, okay. He's just like, we'll just go with the flow. And we're like, hmm. What time does the flow start? <laughs> How should I dress? Is this, a, is this a fancy flow? Is it casual? Can I wear my leggings? Um, do I need to bring snacks? Will there be snack breaks? I have a small bladder. I will need to pee during the flow a lot. Okay, so I'm just warning you. And also, will there be pets? I have, I have so many questions. Why am I have to make small talk with strangers in the flow? Because I just am not here for that. Today, I'm working on myself. We always see what we want to see. We always see what we expect to see. This is like a scientifically proven for humans, like so much so that if you're gonna participate in a medical trial, there has to be like double blinds. Like the, the researchers and the subjects of the experiments can't know what's going on because what you see is what you get. And it makes no difference from the educated or uneducated people. All humans see what they want to see. We see what we expect to see. That's crazy. If you're like, here's a drug that might fix your problem, and you're like, I have it, I'm better. <laughs> I don't have it, I'm dying now. What? <laughs> That's not a thing, and yet it is a thing. We see what we want to see. We have to stop starting with the negative, beginning with no. If we begin with no, we get some form of no back. This could be called nonviolence class 101, <laughs> or how to live with a toddler 101, or how to stop fighting with your partner <laughs> or your roommate but we're like, no, what about boundaries? What about identity? Well, yes, of course. You see what I did there? Of course no can be helpful and necessary. People who can never say no are codependent. No one ever taught them how and when to protect themselves with a necessary no. No can be just as sacred as yes. However, before we're like, yes, that's right, no is great. Most of us have a much harder time with yes than we do with no. To start with no is what it means to live unconsciously. We get so closed off that we can't love. We get so defensive that we can't change. That's a form of blindness. Jesus said the blind leading the blind and they all fall in a pit. This is, or, or well, put it a different way. This is called generational trauma. For some unfortunate reason, complaining and rejecting and being afraid, it strengthens that little ego person and makes us feel important. And we just, but it shrinks us. It shrinks our soul into a small, scared, false self. And it gets really hard to get out of there. It is so important and so difficult to start with yes, because yes means we're starting with presence. 
Our goal should always be presence. And we have to do that outside of our mind because our minds are very intent on judging, controlling, analyzing, instead of seeing, tasting, loving. The mind wants a job. The mind is a bit infected with hustle culture, I guess. It just cannot relax. The mind is always processing. Does anyone have an issue turning their mind off when you're trying to go to sleep at night? Well, yes, the mind is like, oh, overtime? Yes, please. <laughs> Keep you up all night? Yes. Let me tell you about that thing I think you did wrong 10 years ago and yesterday, double whammy. <laughs> the only key to stopping that is to stop, to be silent, to be still. And I think that that has always been God's primary language like on a practical level, silence and God are often experienced simultaneously, sometimes even as the same thing. And then afterwards, you generally want to be a little more quiet. Our overly noisy religion <laughs> cannot handle silence. I legitimately thought about just not talking for like 60 seconds in the middle of this without telling you. I feel like some of y'all would have panic attack. They'd be like, is she okay? Is she having a stroke? Do we need to do something? Do we need to call someone? <laughs> we, our mind cannot follow Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days where there is nothing to say. There is nothing to prove. There is nothing to think. There's nothing to defend. It's just you and God. And we use the phrase peace of mind a lot. I like, I just really want some peace of mind. Just have peace of mind about the thing. But, but there is no such thing. When you are in your mind, you are never truly at peace. And when you are truly at peace, you are never in your mind. Our minds want to reason, logic, argue. And I think reason is wonderful, but it's not our only antenna we also need our bodies and our emotions and our hearts and our senses and our souls. And the mind can achieve great things, but it can also limit what we know because it's so desperate to control the outcome. The mind can seek truth, but it can also create lies in pursuit of safety. The mind loves education, but it also needs to be uneducated and learn how much of what it knows is uh, just conditioning and prejudice. Prayer has often been trivialized into making it like just a way of getting what you want. But I think prayer is an umbrella word for any interior journey or practice that allows you to experience faith and hope and love and God's presence in yourself. It is not a technique for getting things. It is not some pious exercise that makes God happy with you. It is not a requirement for entry into heaven. It is practicing heaven now. It is practicing peace now. The essential, y'all can come back up here. The essential religious experience is like you're being known through more than knowing anything in particular ourselves, which sounds like a nonsensical thing to say. Except if you've been there, if you've experienced, then you know it's true. 
And when you truly meet God, when we truly feel God, when we know God, it's not so much anything we've like worked up the nerve to do ourselves. It's a door that we like cracked open curiously and then we get swallowed whole (laughs) by the mystery of God. When we know we're like very certain that we've experienced God, it's usually accompanied by a very unsettling feeling that we know almost nothing. But we have experienced great love. True knowing feels like unknowing. (laughs) This is like, you just go to college for 17 years, so at the end you can be like, wow, I don't know anything. (laughs) I used to say, you know, I should have been a pastor right when I graduated from my undergrad because then I still thought I knew everything. Now I've been living a while and I'm like, wow. (laughs) I can't believe people listen to me talk. I don't know anything about anything. I barely managed to get out of bed this morning. In fact, I only got out of bed because a certain person who is two years old was like, hello, I need food. True knowing is like contemplation and prayer and non-dualistic thinking all rolled into one. And that kind of prayer takes away the anxiety we always have of figuring everything out for ourselves all the time. Or needing to be right about what we are thinking. To know God, to know God. It means we're sinking into a quiet place where reality actually isn't certain anymore. But somehow it's more real than ever. God becomes more of a verb than a noun. More of a process than a conclusion. More an experience than something you believe in more a personal relationship than an idea. Faith is just a dance with a partner, but one where you're not afraid of making mistakes. And we constantly are asking God to show up as if God is not already here, already everywhere. (laughs) Maybe this is just a Pentecostal thing. When I was growing up, like literally every service, they're like, come Lord Jesus, come Holy Spirit. I'm like, where do you think God went? I was obnoxious. Nothing has changed. I'm still obnoxious. But as a child, I got a lot of dirty looks. (laughs) God is already everywhere, near and far and then and now and above and below and in all and through all. And the gift is already here, like we talked about last week. But we act like it's not. We act like we've never seen it. We don't know what we're we're even talking about. We're like the Christians in Ephesus. Humans don't change that much. 2,000 years ago, the Christians in Ephesus were like, we did not even know there was such a thing as the Holy Spirit. And we act as if we don't know because we have not resolved to practice sinking into that quiet place where God is most accessible, where knowing becomes unknowing, where we're falling, but somehow we're really secure. And maybe this is why any meaningful contemplation practice has to involve like being conscious of your breath. The word for spirit, the spirit is ruach, the breath, literally the breath. The spirit of God is breath. It's been given to us as a gift. The name of God in ancient Israel, still for Jews today, is Yahweh. If you're speaking Hebrew, or if you were speaking Hebrew, it's the sacred tetragrammaton. Proof that humans everywhere in all religions of all time like to make things fancy. 
was YHVH. And Jews to this day will not speak this word. Like I have family that will not speak this word. It is considered an unspeakable word and any attempt to know what we're even talking about when we try to say the word is considered in vain. But formally, the word was not spoken at all. It, was, it would have been breathed. And I, a lot of scholars are convinced that the correct pronunciation of that is an attempt to replicate the very sound of inhalation and exhalation. That is so profound. The one thing we do every moment of our lives is speak the name of God. That makes it our first word when we enter the world and our last word when we exit. It makes it our prayer when we're crying and our praise when we're laughing. And I think if we could just consider it that way, then God suddenly becomes as available and accessible as the very thing we all do constantly. Breathe. Be present. Feel your breath. We worry about the 10,000 things. So few are needed. Indeed, only one. We have two more songs. So if you'd like to stand and sing with us, and then I will come back and give you a benediction.